Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your co-host this week, Sarah Whitmire, along with Benta Boutier. Bob Salzberg has the day off today. And today we're talking about social media and its effect on mental health and on children. We have two incredible guests with us today. Bennett Burtonthal is the Rudy, I'm sorry, James H. Rudy Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences at IU. And Nicole Osball-Williams is joining us again. She is a licensed mental health counselor and a senior lecturer at IU. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. We're glad Thanks to for ha- having us. We're glad to have you. So, you know, this is not new, this idea that social media contributes to um, poor mental health. But I think that's just where I want to start is what does the research really tell us? Because from what I have gleaned, it's difficult to draw a direct correlation between social media use and uh, mental health. Did you want to get us started? Yeah, let me weigh in on this. Um, first of all, let me just point out that you're absolutely right. This is not a new problem, but I think it's reached a higher level of consciousness among the public because starting with the pandemic, so much of our um, communication was um, going to be focused on the internet and social media that people began thinking a lot more um, seriously about what the pros and the cons might be. But this is something that's been with us now for quite some time. And there are both um, people who claim social media um, can be dangerous to the mental health of um, everybody, but especially adolescent and adolescent girls. There are others who focus more on the benefits of social media. And like any issue, you have um, both um, good points and bad points that are associated with it. The um, main issue is that in spite of many people claiming that there's research that supports their point of view, much of the research remains qualitative. It's based on surveys and focus groups. And what we haven't seen are good experimental studies with the necessary controls. And I can go into that more later on. Yeah, uh, real quick before I want to get Nicole into the conversation, but I was reading this NPR story, and you're probably already really familiar with this, but in the 1940s, um, you had scientists warning that some of these sort of true crime-like radio shows were going to lead to the demise of youth. They were going to become addicted to them. And then came comic books, then television. So, I mean, yeah, is social media just kind of the, the thing that we're blaming now? If we don't necessarily have the data, I'm just I'm just curious your thoughts on that. I, I think this relates to the more general issue of social learning and how what we observe is going to influence and shape our values and our um, prejudices and biases. And um, certainly um, in the 1960s and 1970s, with social learning becoming a very popular theoretical perspective, many people were claiming that any type of violence on TV was going to increase the violent behavior of children. Now, I think a large majority of the research has challenged that perspective. And my own point of view is that the answer to any of these questions is more complex, and you can't identify a single factor that's going to be the cause. Yeah, yeah. Nicole, I want to get you in the conversation here. And you're coming at this from so many perspectives. So I, I'm super glad to, super excited to hear just your thoughts on this. And 
what are do you have concerns about about social media as it relates to mental health, happiness, um, uh, people participating in social activities, all those sorts of things? Absolutely. I mean, even well before the pandemic, I had been reading research about um, how being on social media, uh, you know, there's a strong link between depression, loneliness, self-harm, suicidal thoughts. And um, so that's always been a concern. And, you know, the, the, the thought there is that, um, you know, as you're looking, as you're sitting there on social media and you might be sitting there on your couch and you're in your schlumpadinka clothes and you haven't showered in a couple days and then you're flipping through and seeing all these cool things that your friends are doing. And it just, you're comparing your life with their best life. And that ends up making you feel worse about yourself. Um, and so, you know, there was that. And then there was a 2018 study from the University of Pennsylvania, which is where the Center for Positive Psychology is. And they had participants reduce their social media um, time for three weeks. And they reported significant decreases in depression and loneliness. Now, I don't know if this was a focus group type of thing. Maybe Bennett can weigh in on that. Uh, but I just, you know, before I created my happiness class, I just kept reading more and more about this. So mm -hmm. it definitely has an effect. I'll let Bennett weigh in real quick. I'm not familiar with that study, so I can't okay. say whether it okay. was um, an experimental study or just uh, focus groups. But I'm sure there are okay. lots, of lots of studies now that are looking at these same questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to give our phone numbers really quick. So you can join the conversation today. Our phone numbers are 812-855-0811, toll free at 877-285-9348. Of course, you can always email us, news at Indiana Public Media. Dot org or tweet us at Noon Edition. So, Nicole and Bennett, um, I have a question. Yeah. It's uh, related to what you were speaking about earlier. And um, for context, I'm 27, and it feels like for as long as I've had social media, I've seen reports or things that my own parents have sent me that say social media has negative effects on attention span or your mental health. At least since maybe 2015, I've been seeing these sorts of things pop up and these sorts of reports pop up in my own life. And I'm wondering... What do we know now or how has the conversation changed? What's the most significant change that you've seen in the con conversation between maybe 2015 to today? Okay, I have two somewhat different answers to this question. The first is concerning whether social media is decreasing individuals' attention span. This sounds very much like the one of the um, controversies that occurred after Sesame Street began. And people started um, being concerned that because the scenes in Sesame Street changed so quickly that the attention span of children was going to decrease. And I remember uh -huh. this is when I was a young assistant professor and people were complaining that um, we couldn't compete with the type of entertainment that um, our students had been receiving when they were younger on Sesame Street because um, we don't have these quick changes every two to three minutes that they have on Sesame Street. But again, I think that that's an exaggeration of what, what was causing the changes in attention span. Um, you have to think about this in the much larger context of other socio and cultural changes as well. But um, now I'm uh, forgetting the, uh, the more substantive uh, answer I wanted to give. Um, it'll come back to me in a minute. But um, I— Yeah, just about how research has changed over the years yeah. and what we know about the effects of ah. social media. Yeah, okay. and just how that conversation has shifted over time. Yeah. Okay, thanks. The point here, especially with regard to attention span, and I can speak to this as a professor um, who's had to deal with this uh, problem for many years, it's not entirely clear whether it's social media or smartphones and the fact that when people have access to smartphones, are they going to be multitasking all the time or, in fact, ignoring one person in um, 
instead of um, listening to them because they also have their smartphone. Let me just give you a very brief anecdote because this is imprinted on my mind. This was in 2006. No, I'm sorry. This was 1996, and I was walking in Paris, France, and I noticed this couple ahead of me who were holding hands, and you may know that Europe was ahead of us in terms of the um, advent of cell phones, and both of these individuals had cell phones uh, attached to um, their ears, and they were both having separate conversations, and I thought to myself, I've seen the future, and it doesn't look good. <laughs> but I, I think um, the, the issue of cell phones is highly connected to social media. And what we're finding is that people are now so attached to their cell phones that even in experiments that have been done where students have to um, leave their cell phones out of the classroom, they're still distracted by the knowledge that they have cell phones that they're not able to access. And it's only when you can create a situation where they're not thinking about their cell phones and social media that you can get their full attention. So the issue of getting undivided attention is a real challenge, obviously um, not limited to just the classroom. Yeah. Nicole, I want you to weigh in on this because I know when you were on the program before you mentioned um, taking that technology or at least taking social media away from your students. I did. Um, I, I taught online uh, during the main part of the pandemic. So from 2020 to 2021, that academic year. And what I learned about student attention span when it comes to, to the videos, because we'd have to put video content up there. And I think this most people know this, you know, it, you'll watch a video and students are the same if it's maybe two to three minutes. Any longer than that, students probably won't watch it at all or they watch the first minute or two and then your views drop off. And so um, I think that is something that, that we who teach online have have changed the way that that we teach. Um, but with my class, um, yeah, I teach a, a class at Kelly on happiness. And one of the things that I have them do is spend a week without social media. They have a social media fast. And so they have to um, delete their apps off of their phone they can check social media for 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening, but from a laptop uh, or some other desktop or whatever. And um, so that's one of many different habits that I have them try over the eight weeks, happiness habits, all based in positive psychology. And at the end in the their final project, they rank their happiness habits from most to least effective, the ones that, that we tried. And almost without fail, the social media fast is near the top and students report feeling lighter, happier, less anxiety because they're engaging in real life and they're engaging with people and they they have more time to complete their assignments. So it reduces the pressure and the anxiety that they feel when they're trying to get things done quickly because they're doing it all at the last minute. And many say that they plan to change how they use social media going forward. Now. I've not reached back out to those students to see if they're they're still have reduced their time, but um, at least for for that eight weeks and maybe a little bit afterwards, um, it had an effect. Nicole, how did a class on happiness in Kelly come to be? Uh, that's a great question. It's um, we have a LLC, which is a living learning center, and there's in the spring all the students in the LLC have to take a class. And so they're called hot topics classes. And so faculty can come up with anything they wanna teach. If they can tie it back to business, they can teach that class. So this class was the art and science of happiness in business and beyond. And so I tied positive psychology and happiness back to the business world and the effect on the bottom line. Okay. Um, so I, I wanna ask about just all social media and is it created equal? Um, because Nicole, you said something about, you know, like comparing your life to others. And I know in the newsroom, a lot of us use social media to see what folks are talking about, to see if it's a, a news story. Other people um, 
probably a little bit about what you were talking about, Bennett. Use it just to sort of aimlessly scroll while they're watching a show or something. So is there a difference in, in how we use it and how that might affect folks' mental health? Absolutely. Um, and the fact that you just mentioned scrolling makes me think of doom scrolling, which is a new term that is now coming into vogue that has to do with the fact that um, there is more negative information in social media and on the web than positive information. So through doom scrolling, a person can develop a negativity bias where they're going to be more negative, uh, negatively um, inclined due to doom scrolling. Um, the research has just begun on this uh, very important topic, but I think we all know that there is a great deal of negativity associated with social media, and um, this certainly is going to have an influence, especially on young, impressionable minds. So th that's an important um, concern right now. Um, and more generally, um, we know that there's going to be um, a great deal of different uses for social media. My colleagues and I focus primarily on photo sharing as one entry point for understanding social media. Um, it may surprise you, it may not surprise you, that over two and a half billion photos are shared on a daily basis. Oh my gosh, and daily. <laughs> This is something that represents one of the principal forms of commerce on the, on the web. Um, and one of the things that we've been concerned about is protecting the privacy and security of individuals when photos are shared. Um, a theme that um, hasn't received as much attention as it should is that I think most people realize the web cannot be completely private. Um, and secure. However, I don't think most people realize that when you share a photo and you think you're just sharing it to a close group of family members or friends, you have no control over what they may do with that same photo. Plus, virtually anything on the web can be stolen and used by someone else. And this has enormous uh, repercussions. Just, again, one very quick anecdote. There is a very well-known photo on the web of this one-and-a-half-year-old with um, a fist um, held up high, and he's frowning. And this was a picture of somebody's child that was posted on the web. It was picked up by some company that was using this child initially to sell a product, and then it was picked up by a um, Republican um, uh, representative in Iowa who has used it um, in order to um, get votes. Um, so here you have the commercialization of private photos where it was never considered possible that this is the way they would end up being used. Um, and that's just one of the risks involved in um, photo sharing. Bennett, I don't know if you can, can answer this or not, but um, I also have a, have a young child who is very interested in getting on social media platforms. And it, his, he says don't know if this is true. It comes from a 12-year-old. But if you're on Snapchat, then you don't have to worry so much about your images because they disappear. Is that correct? And, uh, nope. That's not correct. <laughs> All right, Nicole, to tell us. But I've also heard that Snapchat well, is used for more like illicit activities because it disappears. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with, with Snapchat, yes, they do disappear. But there's nothing saying that somebody can't grab a screenshot, they can do a, a screen recording of whatever you put up on Snapchat. So yeah, that's what the, the kids try to sell us parents on <laughs> is that it disappears. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, it's just like Bennett said, anything you put out there is always going to be out there. Is there a type of social media that you think is most concerning? So you've, Bennett, mentioned issues with image-based sharing in that being of high concern for you. I'm looking at rankings of like most popular social media right now from 2014 to 2020. And Facebook looks like by far and above the most used with more than 80% followed by Instagram at like maybe 75. And 
Well, okay. No, it's Facebook second, then Instagram. So those are our two most popular. Different social media uh, companies have been associated with um, some overlapping and somewhat uh, different problems. I think most of us know about all the controversy that Instagram received, um, that it was heightening the um, depression and mental health problems of adolescent girls. Um, and again, I want to just point out that most of this research is only correlational, so we don't have definitive evidence about um, the direction of effect being that the social media is leading to um, the mental health problems. Um, but I, I think I initially interpreted your question a little differently in terms of what content is going to be most concerning, and that's easy. It's child sexual abuse material or child pornography. And this is something that shockingly um, has not been dealt with satisfactorily, um, especially by some of the large computer companies. But I can tell you that it turns out to be much harder than you might ever imagine. So for example, in 2021, Apple Computer finally stepped up to the plate and they announced that they were going to be releasing a new set of tools to protect um, children um, from child pornography. And this was in the summer of 2021. No sooner did they announce this, it hadn't been implemented yet, but they received a tremendous amount of criticism, especially from civil rights groups, from privacy groups, and from computer scientists, because the methods that they were going to use would potentially allow um, the company a backdoor into monitoring any um, image um, or any material that was stored on iCloud. And that clearly received a great deal of um, criticism. What received less criticism but um, was of more concern to my colleagues and I was the um, uh, provision of a parental control policy where any um, picture that um, involves some form of child pornography, and let me just point out that the picture itself is going to be ambiguous. You can have a picture of a baby taking a bath um, or a new child, and the machine uh, learning can't distinguish between these. But anyway, um, this was going to be, all of these pictures were going to be blurred. Children, at least up until 13 years of age, were going to be informed that they don't have to look at these pictures. But if they opted to look at them, and this is the key point, then their parents were going to be notified mm. that they either were sending these pictures or receiving these pictures. And of course, this sounds very reasonable. Um, parents want to know, and we certainly want to reduce the likelihood of children engaging in child pornography. But the problem is that there are hidden um, risks involved in parental control. For example, children don't always want their parents to know what information they're exchanging. This is especially true for uh, children of LGBTQ um, persuasions because in all of these cases, they run the risk of um, being um, threatened, bullied, or even kicked out of their house. Um, so in these cases, if parents were informed about the type of pictures they were spreading, this would really um, be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And more generally, we know that children are going to um, sometimes um, view it as a badge of courage to just get around the parental controls that are imposed on them. And they're going to find ways of being able to do what they're told not to do. That leads to a question we got. I want to, I want to give our numbers and then we'll get to those questions. 812-855-0811. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition 
or you can email in your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And today we're talking about social media and mental health. So we've got a question. How effective are parental locks, really? So, Bennett? I I think they're generally effective, but as I was trying to point out, there are going to be some children, some subgroups of children for whom having parental locks is going to backfire. And this is actually the thrust of a lot of the work that we do. Um, There's a great deal of work now on the development of what's often referred to as nudges, both behavioral and technological, to try to combat the negative effects of um, technology. And in our case, um, we looked at this um, with regard to photo sharing because we wanted to see if we could develop some simple nudges for just reducing the likelihood of sharing photos which could lead to cyberbullying, shaming, embarrassing, and a whole host of uh, different forms of psychological distress. So in one of the earliest studies we conducted, we took um, 100 photo memes. And memes are photos where they've been slightly altered um, by um, adding text or varying the image a little bit. And if it's effective, they often go viral, which means that they spread very quickly all around the web. And if this is a meme that has identified somebody as the subject, in a way that they're going to be embarrassed or humiliated, this is going to create a great deal of um, difficulty for them. So we wanted to um, just see, are there simple ways that you could reduce this? And we thought we'd begin with the most obvious and simplest, which is we created a study where we had subjects make decisions about sharing photo memes, and in the control condition, we simply ask them before each photo, how likely are you to share this photo? And they was supposed to rate it on a seven-point scale. And then we introduced our nudge, which was simply adding to that question, taking into account the privacy and security of others, how likely are you to share this photo meme? And of course, we thought that um, adding that little nudge was going to Um, decrease the likelihood of sharing. But in fact, it didn't. And I can tell you that we are absolutely confident of that because we've replicated this multiple times now. And it actually led to a full point increase in the likelihood of sharing. It's baffling. We have a number of hypotheses. Um, Some of these are just anchoring or framing where when you um, will frame the question now so that you're asking people to share the photo specifically just in terms of privacy, there may have been other factors that they previously had taken into account, but in our experimental condition, they're only thinking of it in terms of privacy, so now they're less likely to be concerned about um, sharing. Mm -hmm. and they share more often. So this is an example of what we call the backfiring of nudges. And it's a point that we've tried to make repeatedly because there are by now probably more than a thousand behavioral nudges that have been developed. A, A simple example of this is where you take unhealthy food in a school cafeteria and you move it so that it's um, higher up and less out of su- and more out of sight so that children are less likely to eat the unhealthy food. And in that case, you assume, well, it either works or it doesn't. And that's the operating principle of nudges. But what we've shown is that nudges sometimes can do more harm than good. And that's what we want people to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we got another question. This one is for Nicole. It comes from Valerie. Um, she says she's concerned with how social media has taken the place of face-to-face conversations. That being said, are there concerns with children's social skills as face-to-face becomes less and less? And has Nicole seen any struggles with students struggling with face-to-face communication? 
Uh, I think the pandemic really, um, especially for for younger children, um, developmentally, there has been a challenge there, especially the kids that were learning online um, and didn't have any social outlet for a year, year and a half, two years. Um, so definitely, I, I've seen that. Um, in terms of, can you repeat the question again? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's two parts, <laughs> so it's difficult. Um, okay. Um, okay. Are there concerns with children's social skills as face-to-face becomes less and less? And has Nicole seen any concerns with students struggling with face-to-face communication? Well, funny enough, I now teach an online course, so um, I'm not seeing my students <laughs> face-to-face. But um, when I was, just as as recently as the spring, I was teaching a face-to-face course. And I think um, those students have come through okay in terms, this is just what I've seen, um, in terms of their how, how social they are and how they can communicate. Now, in terms of, you know, how mature they are, um, like writing emails that are are professionally or kindly written, um, you know, things like that seem to be lagging behind. But socially, they seem to be having lots of fun, <laughs> from what I can see. <laughs> Bennett, has there been research um, that you're aware of about just teens spending the, the amount of time they spend on social media and if that um, has any effect on the amount of time they spend with people in real life. Definitely. Um, the amount of time that most adolescents are spending online is incredible. Um, I read it could be a minimum of three hours a day. So that clearly is cutting into their um, in-person interactions. And I saw, especially during the pandemic, when I was teaching um, virtually for a few years, how much more difficult it was to communicate, to feel like I was able to get across the same points. And that may just have been partly um, based on my own comfort level because it's very useful to get the feedback of your class where you can just see whether anybody's paying attention if they appear to understand what you're talking about. Having said that, I think we've crossed the Rubicon and we're going to be living in much more of a virtual world. And we've only seen the very beginning. And I think, yes, um, normative social interactions have taken a hit at this point, but it's going to take more than a few years for us to fully adjust. I think it's the younger generation that has been growing up in this situation that's going to be much more comfortable with um, these um, virtual um, interactions. But it's also going to change the rules of engagement in a number of very important ways. I do a lot of research on mutual gaze and how important that is in communication. Um, But we also know that typically when you don't know a stranger, you don't look at their eyes. It's only when you know somebody that you're going to look at their eyes. That's not a problem when you're um, talking to somebody virtually. They don't know when you're looking at their eyes. So it's just one example of how your um, attention to someone else can change in a virtual situation. Hmm. I know, you know, we're talking about how it's it's difficult to draw a direct correlation between social media and these things. But Nicole, I mean, if people are spending less time around people in real life, that there surely has to be a, a connection there with happiness. I mean, well, I, and, and yeah. I guess tying this back to to children, um, you know, I think because I've got a son who is 15 and he's a a sophomore and we were really reluctant to get him a phone. He was one of the last kids to get a phone. The first phone he got had no social media capability. It was just basically like the old school phone we used to have hanging on the wall, but he could carry it around and he had a camera so he could text and he could take pictures and talk. And that was about it. But, you know, I look at how kids are socializing now and a lot of their socializing comes through their phones. They're on FaceTime. Mm-hmm. They're texting, of course. Um, you know, I don't, and this is again an- anecdotal, but you know, my son's not playing 
video games for hours a day. We've limited his screen time to three hours, which seems like a lot. But what he at least tells me is a lot of that is communicating with friends. And, you know, he's in the marching band. And so coordinating with his section and, and this and that. And, and when are they going to practice? And, and so all of that stuff is happening um, online. And I also wonder if, because he's an extrovert. He is as outgoing as could possibly be. So he's in extracurricular activities and he's doing all this face-to-face stuff. But I have to wonder if introverts, you know, especially starting high school, that, you know, that's a that's a big deal. Um, they're more comfortable in an online environment. And so they welcome, um, you know, texting and, and, and social media because that feels more comfortable for them. So this is sure. a, sorry. Um, this is a little bit of a maybe sort of personal question, but how do you manage that in a normalization of communication online? Like I know the sports groups and other things I've taken part of have Facebook groups and other ways like group me for communicating where it became really inconvenient not to have those things. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was a big part of us getting him a phone because I started seeing him being left out. Because, you know, kids mostly communicate through text. And, you know, if my kid didn't have a phone, then he was, it's not like people call on home phones anymore. He wouldn't have been able to connect with his friend group. So that's, that's the thing that pushed me over the edge to actually get him one. So Bennett and Nicole, I'm looking at um, one thing that I was curious on asking about is social media platforms using algorithms similar to like different types of online gambling and that sort of thing. And um, the article I'm looking at is from 2018, but it seems to be a persisting issue. And so they're sort of designed, it seems to imply, um, to be addictive. And I'm wondering what the impact of somebody so young, like being 15, that does to your brain being exposed to things that really are algorithms that other people are interacting with as adults? Well, I don't think we know yet. Go ahead, Bennett. Uh, I'm sorry, Nicole. Go ahead. No, I just, I was just going to say, I, I don't think we know yet. And that's what you were saying earlier in the conversation. Okay. I, I can say that um, the brain is to some extent like a sponge, um, although that's probably not a good analogy because it's much more active and it's going to be influenced by whatever experiences it has. Uh, it's not necessarily bad um, that the child or the adolescent is interacting online with um, certain uh, social media that may have some algorithmic rules to it. Most um, everything um, is based on algorithms now, and if it isn't yet, it soon will be. That's uh, what AI is all about. Um, but I interpreted your question specifically with regard to video games, which have become so addictive. and. That's an intriguing um, issue. Um, I have a grandson who, going back now probably seven, eight years, was already um, becoming infatuated with Fortnite. And I couldn't understand for the life of me what the attraction was because all he did was observe what somebody else was doing. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a different world. and. Um, it did give him an opportunity to connect with others, to have some common ground for uh, talking. Um, I, I think we, we have to do complete analyses of all of these new um, technologies and not just look for what the negatives are or the positives, but to see what the pros and cons are. But more generally, I, I think um, video gaming is certainly here to stay. There are some individuals who are spending a good part of their day um, with video gaming. And it's no different than other types of addictions that people have. And I, I think we need to be aware of that and, again, try to protect people. But coming up with the means for being able to protect people from themselves 
is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. We, we got a question from Christina, and she says, what resources are out there for grandparents raising children who are not on social media to help protect their grandchildren? So these... I actually... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I, I actually looked last night um, to see what kind of parental involvement there are and i specifically or there is i specifically looked at uh snapchat and instagram and um instagram it doesn't seem like um they have a 67 page guide for parents helping their teens so i would i would suggest that that the listener uh do a Google search for that, but I skimmed through it. I didn't read 67 pages last night about Instagram. Um, and uh, it, it's mostly just privacy settings that everybody can put on their Instagram account. It's there's, there's a supervisory piece that you can turn on for Instagram that um, allows you to supervise certain things. What I've done with my son is I have his Instagram account on my phone. And he knows I have it on my phone. And so I can check and see what he's doing. I can read his messages. And, you know, that's invasion of privacy. And that's a whole different conversation. But he knows that that I have that check. Um, Snapchat does seem to be more protective of teens. Uh, they have age-appropriate content because they know that it's a teenager on there. Um, but that assumes that kids have entered their birthday correctly. And you can lie about your birthday and get out on, on any of these things and, and you know, have an account. So, um, yeah, so those are, that's two different things. Yeah. So if you're a grandparent trying to, do. and you don't want to get on these platforms, though, it does seem like that's a real challenge, how you monitor it. I, yeah. I agree. And I have uh reaction to hearing that you need to read 67 pages on an Instagram manual (laughs) because I don't think anybody's going to do that and I don't think it's necessary either. There's a need for simplification of operating instructions. I think that if they could reduce that down to two pages, people would be much more likely to read it and it would be helpful. I, I do think it's a good idea to have these manuals, but remembering even when my daughters were very young and I would have manuals for putting together their toys when they were more than two or three pages it was terrorizing to me <laughs> to think about having to go through it uh, Nicole just a well I should clarify sh- let me just clarify yeah. real quick the the 70 67 page guide is mostly pictures with very little text on each page. Mm-hmm. So it's not okay. quite as bad as it sounds. It's still pretty bad that you would need to read 67 it, pages or I, even yeah. 10 Agreed. seems excessive. Um, Give me a one pager. That's yes, one exactly. Pager. Um, I, Nicole, you mentioned the thing about people plugging in their birth dates um, and doing it honestly. And that that's sort yeah. of a battle I know I've been dealing with is, um, you know, having a kiddo who's who's peers are clearly not being honest about it, but I'm a, I'm a big rule follower. But um, I, I'm curious, just like what, for the for folks who don't know, it's like you have to be of a certain age. And is it is it 16 for all these platforms? 14, 13? 13. 13. 13, 13 for all of yeah. them. Okay. And then... I don't know for all of them, but I think most of them, 13 is the lower limit. And that's self-reported. You, you put it exactly. in. Exactly. Okay. So yep. is, yep. I guess, is there a better, is there a better system you all have that you're just thinking, oh my gosh, this would be so easy to fix if we did X? I don't think it'll be easy to fix. Um, and this may sound a little like a carnival act, but I think we're close to being at the point where just like when you're signing um, a, a rental on Airbnb, you have to submit um, a picture of your face that's compared with um, a driver's license or something. We now have um, good enough um, machine learning of facial recognition that we could at least get an approximation of somebody's age from the the face um, that um, is going to be transmitted. And um, that's tricky. Um, You'd have to do it like Airbnb, where you can't just submit a a saved photo, because then somebody could just take anybody's photo. But it has to be one in real time that is transmitted. 
And I'm not saying that that can be done right now, although I am aware of some research suggesting that we can at least approximate somebody's age from facial recognition mm -hmm. software. Bennett and Nicole, you both have, um, as we've had this conversation, you've continued to add sort of the emphasis on, especially with girls, especially with girls. What does, what does the research say about the differences in gender and how um, social media, how they're influenced by social media? Well, I think we know that generally during adolescence, girls are more concerned with social comparisons than boys, more concerned with physical appearance. So when they see um, all of these um, glamorous individuals on Instagram, they immediately are going to be comparing themselves and feeling inferior in ways that are just not um, psychologically healthy. Do you think that's more, this is like a bit of a, not only technology question, but do you think that's an issue with more society as a whole and what it's valuing for women and projecting down to young girls or something that's actually like image-based and technology? I, I think that's a very important question and I agree um, with, I think, um, the direction you're going. It's not just a matter of technology. This isn't just social media. This is um, the um, priorities that we have as a culture. And um, we need to keep in mind um, what some of the implications of this will be, especially for young, impressionable um, um, individuals. What do we know about for younger, what do we know about boys? Because I remember um, like four years ago seeing lots of things about young men being targeted by extreme right-wing groups. Mm. Um, is that still happening? Um, what kinds of other things are being sent in their direction? I think it's always a danger um, when you have any presence at all on social media. You can be targeted for um, the most innocuous reasons or there could be some very personal reason, but it can lead to um, all sorts of um, the very negative consequences and because um, some of these targeting experiences go viral, that means that the public exposure you encounter is so much greater than if it was just within your own uh, neighborhood cohort. I, I want to ask you, Nicole, a follow-up to that is just um, I'm thinking about, I don't know if we could see it necessarily as a positive, but a, a follow to Benta's question is that, um, you know, some of these young people are being faced with these ideas that, that might be unpopular sooner because it's uh, getting exploited on, on social media. So I'm just, um, is social media just really revealing problems that have existed a long time and they're just getting amplified? And the effects that, you know, um, that has on people. I'm not sure how to answer that, honestly. Um, I think they are, I mean, they are getting amplified, obviously. Um, and I can only speak anecdotally, you know, I, I've not seen that happen with, with my son's Instagram. Um, I think it's, you know, if you have your child on a private account, so people can't get to them. Um, and, you know, they're only being followed by people that they know. And that's a conversation you have to have with your child and say, you know, you don't let any just anybody follow you, it needs to be somebody that you know and you know going back to a couple questions ago um you know boys versus girls on on social media i was really reluctant to let him go out there because i had seen what it does to to young women and to girls and after he had been out a while he said you know mom girls social media versus boys social media is very different so you know the girls are doing all the comparisons and the looking beautiful and the posing and my son is posting pictures of him playing his, or videos of him playing his drum set and his brother digging a hole and for the most part boys make really funny faces on when they're putting now granted he's 15 so i can only speak to, to that age 
but it it's just a very different experience for boys versus girls from anecdotally from what i've seen yeah i wonder how much that changes as they age you know I, yeah i don't know, I don't know. I'll let you know in a couple of years. <laughs> okay. We only have a have a couple minutes left. And I realize one thing I've neglected to ask, and if you all don't mind disclosing, I'm just curious about your own social media habits and um, how you um, in, engage with social media in a, in a healthy way. I study uh, privacy and security on the uh, web. And partly for that reason, my social media presence is very, very limited um, because I'm just concerned about the vulnerabilities and abuses that can happen to anyone. So it's um, peace of mind for me. Um, I, I, I think that's partly uh, generational as well. I grew up before the internet. Um, I didn't um, have to um, enter any um, peer group um, through um, social media or um, the internet more generally, and I'm very comfortable just being able to interact uh, in person. That's not to say that there aren't um, some really important advantages of social media, but given my own um, concerns, um, I feel um, most comfortable just keep keeping a low profile. Okay, Nicole, we only have about 20 seconds left. I want to ask you, you know, <laughs> what, it, what is your advice to young people who might be struggling with balancing social media? Just give yourself a limit. There's ways on iPhones, probably on Androids to limit yourself to 30 minutes a day. Um, use those, use those, those controls and uh, put your phone in another room. There you go. That helps a lot, too. Okay. Well, thank you so much to Nicole Bennett. Thank you for being here today. A lot of great information. Thank you for having us. We are out of time. I want to thank my co-hosts, Ben Boutier and producer Nathan Moore, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks, to, thanks for listening to Noon Edition, and have a great weekend. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org and from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.